The rain is rolling in off the West Coast. It's a beautiful Friday afternoon here in Florida. You're in the Soul Trap. As always, we trust that wherever this broadcast finds you, wherever it finds you, however it finds you, you are on that good and narrow way. Well, today we are going to um, we're going to take a little bit of a different turn, a different take on things. Today, I simply want to read a few things that have really helped me out this week. A few things that I think are a blessing, and so maybe a little bit of a lighter, maybe a little bit more of a theological, spiritual sort of a soul trap here, but every once in a while after shadow people, Catholics, and Bigfoot, we need something a little bit more of substance to sink our teeth into. You know, I think I read or heard, I think I heard a guy say, maybe I read it. Anyway, Reading or hearing, I'll never forget a guy said, don't miss the treasure for the earthen vessel. What he was saying is, is that sometimes all of us, look, I don't care how much of a Bible believer you are, we all are earthen vessels. Some are more earthy than others, but all of us are earthen vessels. And yet sometimes there are real treasures Probably one of the great truths I learned about being myself is from a preacher years ago in the 70s and 80s in California who was definitely, definitely an earthen vessel and yet a lot of treasure. Now, you have to be careful how far you take that because I don't want to mine, I don't want Mein Kampf to be a book that I read to draw out treasures. I don't need to read the Koran, although I'm sure that just like a clock, it can be right twice a day. I'm sure that there may be a nugget here or there. So there is a, oh, I don't know. There is a limit to which that is true. I'm not going to listen to a Satanist talk or preach and go, well, they, they have some good insight here or there. And I'm not going to do that. But within the realm of Christianity, Orthodox, Evangelical Christianity, there are people that disagree with me, that I disagree with, and yet they they have that treasure in earthen vessel. You know, I find that to be true. I was just thinking about uh, a good friend of mine was doing um, a series on Calvinism. I'm not a Calvinist, but I sure do like George Whitfield. I sure do like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I sure do like C.H. Spurgeon. And so you may disagree with somebody. I was thinking just about this the other day. My brother and I probably disagree on versions of the scripture and a few things like a few things like that and I wouldn't even get into the details it's not a, 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 a bitter disagreement we just disagree as two brothers in Christ and yet the other day he posted something online about scripture and how we know that we have the scriptures and this is a great 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 statement great truth uh, probably he's one of, if not, uh, in my own personal opinion, probably one of the great and most spiritual men that I know, even though we disagree on a variety of issues. We got the gospel right. Now, I'm going maybe the long way around to say that I want to read to you maybe two selections. I don't even know if I can connect them. But I want to read two selections to you from two totally different people that have zero in common, and yet they're great truths. One of them is by 
a psychologist slash philosopher by the name of Jordan B. Peterson. The other is by our friendly Christian fictionist and philosopher C.S. Lewis. The first is by Jordan Peterson, a book I've been reading by him called 12 Rules for Life, An Anecdote to Chaos. And I want to highly recommend that you not waste the money in getting it. Talk about bloviating, 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 bloviating. He is not a Christian. Um, He is not a humanist, but he's not a Christian. Uh, There's a lot of stuff in there that's just not necessary. But there is a great line in here that I read. And I want to read this and try to develop the thought on this for just a moment. He makes a statement, and I'm just going to lift this statement out because you're not you're you're listening now. You're not getting any context. But I want you to just let me read the statement. Let me develop it for a second. He says it's also unlikely that you're playing only one game. You have a career and friends and family, personal projects, artistic endeavors, athletic pursuits. You might consider judging your success across all the games you play. Imagine that you are very good at some, middling at others, and terrible at the remainder. Perhaps that's how it should be. You might object. You might say, I should be winning at everything. But winning at everything might only mean that you're not doing anything new or difficult. You might be winning, but you're not growing. And growing might be the most important form of winning. Should victory in the present Always take precedence over trajectory across time. Now, maybe you're listening to the soul trap and you're driving. Maybe you're listening to the soul trap and you're going to bed. Maybe you're listening to the soul trap and you're doing lawn work or whatever. The soul trap has never been a shtick. We've never had a certain thing. Whatever is on our heart, that's what we are. That's what we're going to talk about. And man, when I read that, I sat there, I read it late at night, and I sat there and just chewed on that. Let me read that to you again. You might be winning, but you're not growing. And growing might be the most important form of winning. Now listen to this next statement. Should victory in the present always take precedence over trajectory across time? You might be winning, but you're not growing. You know, I really thought about that. I suppose you could use that to fill in the blank for just about anything, couldn't you? You might be winning, but you're not growing. Okay? You won the argument with your wife, but is the marriage growing? You got your way. But is the relationship growing? Or church? You know, I'm not against big days. I'm not against evangelism. Here at Suncoast Baptist Church, we have our evangelistic Sunday once a month. The first Sunday of every month, we have evangelistic Sunday. Sunday night, our entire church goes out. Wonderful job. Men's evangelism on Thursday night. We train. We mentor. We have missions. We started a church out of our church, out of Suncoast Baptist Church, east in a city called Arcadia, we have uh, Sunrise Baptist Church, Pastor Sean Lombardia, saved in our church, trained in our church, pastoring over there. We're trying to get a church started in Belize. 
Uh, we're trying to get a church started in Riverview, just north of us in the Tampa area. We're for evangelism. I'm for it. I'm, I'm all for it. But, you know, I've noticed sometimes in church and Christianity and ministry, maybe because of our Americanism, right, we tend to put winning above growing. Imagine with me if you took a piece of paper. Just take a piece of scratch paper wherever you are. Maybe you're, I don't know, in your garage or kitchen table. Just grab a piece of scratch paper and draw an off-center. Just draw a line with a right angle. Up and down and then horizontal. And on the left line going vertical, right winning. On the right, the one going horizontal, right growing. Now winning has these sharp highs but it also has these sharp lows. You can win a lot on that line, but it doesn't mean that you move out on the trajectory of growth. That's why football stars and rock stars, stars, they will win and have their quote-unquote 15 minutes of fame, and that dot up on that vertical line will be astronomically high. They have won. And yet, the movement across the the x-axis The movement across the growth line is infinitesimal. You're a famous Hollywood star married six times. You're a famous football star, abusive, unhappy, ugly. You've got everything that one could ask for and nothing that you need. I think that is one of the most profound statements that I have come across in a long time. And I must confess it's something that I don't work on as much as I should, but something that I want to work on more than I am. Is it winning or is it growing? Am I sacrificing the trajectory of growth across time for winning right now? You see, if you're growing in the right way little by little over time, that dot, that movement if you're growing, is going to go up the winning side. You see, it's really impossible to grow without winning. It's just the trajectory takes longer. But it is possible to win without growing. So maybe you're mowing the lawn, maybe you're changing the car battery, maybe you're driving, whatever. Can you think philosophically for a minute? What are you doing in your life? What are you doing in your ministry that is sacrificing the trajectory of growth for the precedent of immediate victory? You might be winning, but are you growing? Well, now we change gears. Now we change gears, and I'm going to ask you to think about something else. C.S. Lewis, there's a great book called How to Be a Christian, Reflections and Essays by C.S. Lewis. I wouldn't say that C.S. Lewis is a great theologian. I wouldn't say that I agree with him at all. But I do think, as I mentioned earlier, there is treasure in this vessel. And this chapter that I'm about to read to you is from God in the Dock. The title is called, On the Dangers of Pointing Out Faults in Others. And before you assume you know where it's going, listen and think. C.S. Lewis says, I suppose I may assume that 
7 out of 10 of those who read these lines are in some kind of difficulty about some other human being. Either at work, at work or at home, either the people who employ you or those whom you employ, either those who share your house or those whose house you share, either your in-laws or parents or children, your wife, your husband, are making life harder for you than it need be even in these days. It is to be hoped that we do not often mention these difficulties, especially the domestic ones, to outsiders. But alas, sometimes we do. An outside friend asks us why we are looking so glum, and the truth comes out. On such occasions, the outside friend usually says, But why don't you tell them? Why don't you go to your wife or husband or father or daughter or boss or landlady and have it all out? People are usually responsible. All you have to do is make them see things in the right light, explain to them in a reasonable, quiet, friendly way. And we, whenever we say outwardly, think sadly to ourselves, he just doesn't know X. We do. We know how utterly hopeless it is to make X see reason. Either we've tried it over and over again, Tried it till we are sick of trying it, or else we've never tried it because we saw from the beginning how useless it would be. We know that if we attempt to have it all out with X, there will either be a scene or else X will stare at us in a blank amazement and say, I don't know what on earth you're talking about. Or else, which is perhaps worst of all, X will quite agree with us and promise to turn over a new leaf and put everything on a new footing and then 24 hours later will be exactly the same X as has always been. You know. You know, in fact, that any attempt to talk things over with X will shipwreck on the old fatal flaw in X's character. And you see, looking back, how all the plans you have ever made always have shipwrecked on that fatal flaw, on X's incurable jealousy, or laziness, or touchiness, or muddle-headedness, or bossiness, or ill-temper, or changeableness. Up to a certain age, you have perhaps had the illusion that some external stroke of good fortune, an improvement in health, the rise of salary, the end of the war would solve your difficulty. But you know better now. The war is over. And you realize that even if the other things happen, X would still be X. And you would still be up against the same old problem. Even if you became a millionaire, your husband would still be a bully. Or your wife would still nag. Or your son would still drink. Or you'd still have to have your mother-in-law to live with you. It is a great step forward to realize that this is so. To face the fact that even if all external things went right, real happiness would still depend on the character of the people you have to live with. And that you can't alter their characters. And now, ladies and gentlemen, comes the point. When you have seen this, you have for the first time had a glimpse of what it must be like for God. For, of course, this is, in one way, just what God himself is up against. He has provided a rich, beautiful world for people to live in. He has provided them intelligence to show them how it can be used and conscience to show them how it ought to be used. He has contrived 
that the things they need for their biological life, food, drink, rest, sleep, exercise, should be positively delightful to them. And having done all this, he then sees all his plans spoiled, just as our little plans are spoiled, by the crookedness of the people themselves. All the things he has given them to be happy, they turn into occasions for quarreling, jealousy, excess, hoarding, and tomfoolery. You may say it very different for God, because he could, if he pleased, alter people's character, and we can't. But this difference doesn't go quite as deep as we may at first think. God has made it a rule for himself that he won't alter people's character by force. He can and will alter them, but only if the people will let him. In that way, he has really and truly limited his power. Sometimes we wonder why he has done so or even wish he hadn't, but apparently he thinks it's worth doing. He would rather have a world of free beings with all its risks than a world of people who did right like machines because they couldn't do anything else. The more we succeed in imagining what a world of perfect automatic beings would be like, the more I think we shall see his wisdom. I said that when we see how all our plans shipwreck on the characters of people we have to deal with, we are in one way seeing what it must be like for God, but only in one way. There are two respects in which God's view must be very different from ours. In the first place, he sees, like you, how all people in your home or your job are in various degrees awkward or difficult. But when he looks into that home or factory or office, he sees one more person of the same kind, the one you never do see. I mean, of course, yourself. That is the next great step in wisdom, to realize that you also are just that sort of person. You also have a fatal flaw in your character. All the hopes and plans of others have again and again shipwrecked on your character, just as your hopes and plans have shipwrecked on theirs. It is no good passing this over with some vague general admission, such as, of course, I know I have my faults. It is important to realize that there is some real fatal flaw in you, something which gives the others just that same feeling of despair which their flaw gives you. And it is almost certainly something you don't know about, like the advertisements call halitosis, which everyone notices except the person who has it. But why, you ask, don't others tell me? Believe me, they have tried to tell you over and over again. You just couldn't take it. Perhaps a good deal of what you call their nagging or bad temper or queerness or just their attempts to make you see the truth. And even the faults you do know, you don't. No fully. You say, I admit I lost my temper last night, but the others know that you're always doing it, that you're a bad-tempered person. You say, I admit I drank too much last Saturday, but everyone else knows that you are a habitual drunkard. That is one way in which God's view must differ from mine. He sees all the characters. He sees all the characters. I see all except my own. But the difference, the second difference is this. He loves the people in spite of their faults. He goes on loving. 
he does not let go. Don't say, it's all very well for him. He hasn't got to live with them. Oh, he has. He is inside them as well as outside them. He is with them far more intimately and closely and incessantly than we can ever be. Every vile thought within their minds and ours, every moment of spite, of envy, arrogance, greed, and self-conceit comes right up against his patient, longing love and grieves his spirit more than it grieves ours. The more we can imitate God in both these respects, the more progress we shall make. We must love X more, and we must learn to see ourselves as a person of exactly the same kind. Some people say it is morbid to be always thinking of one's own faults. That would be all very well if most of us could stop thinking of our own without soon beginning to think about those of other people. For unfortunately, we enjoy thinking about other people's faults. And in proper sense of the word morbid, that is the most morbid pleasure in the world. We don't like rationing, which is imposed upon us. But I suggest one form of rationing, which we ought to impose on ourselves. Abstain from all thinking about other people's faults. Unless your duties as a teacher or parent make it necessary to think about them. Whenever the thoughts come unnecessarily into one's mind, why not simply shove them away and think of one's own faults instead? For there, with God's help, one can do something. Of all the awkward people in your house or job, there is only one whom you can improve very much, and that is the practical end at which to begin. And really, we'd be better. The job has to be tackled some day, and every day we put it off will make it harder to begin. What, after all, is the alternative? You see clearly enough that nothing, not even God, with all his power, can make X really happy as long as X remains envious and self-centered and spiteful. Be sure there is something inside you which, unless it is altered, will put it out of God's power to prevent your being eternally miserable. While that something remains, there can be no heaven for you, just as there can be no sweet smells for a man with a cold in the nose and no music for a man who is deaf. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing up which will of itself be hell, unless it is nipped in the bud. The matter is serious. Let us put ourselves in his hands at once, this very day, this very hour. Two earthen vessels we just read from. Two treasures, I hope.